The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Hello, and this is Ellie Weiss, and you're tuned in to Our Wild World. Today, I have the distinct pleasure to introduce you to the International Anti-Poaching Foundation and the amazing man behind it, Damien Mander, who, with his team and organization, may well be on the frontline changes of the model, shape, and form of modern wildlife conservation, a paradigm shift to how we approach the challenges of protecting critical habitat and species facing increasing threats to their survival, and, just as importantly, the people who put their lives on the thin green line to do so. I met Damien and Jackson Hole. He was a panel speaker on the forum Extreme Conservation, in which his presentation was bold and straightforward. He provided the delegates and other speakers with whole new possibilities of solutions to the serious questions being posed today about how will we approach conservation. Now, I'd very much like to welcome Damien Mander. Welcome, Damien. Ellie, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and how are you today? I'm very good, and thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it's today for what is a Monday morning for you in, in America, I believe. Yes, it is, and it's a Monday evening for you in South Africa. We have gotten our Monday out of the way quite safely, and <laughs> uh, we prepare for Tuesday. I'm glad to hear that. That's an interesting way to look at it. So um, why don't we kind of jump right in? I've, I've, uh, hopefully our listeners will turn to the guest bio page on uh, our website link here at Voice America and read a little bit of background about you. But as, so we don't detract too much from our listeners' attention, why don't you tell us a little bit about how International po- Poaching Foundation, IAPF for short, got started, how you came to, to be there. It's a really interesting and compelling story. Okay, yeah, thanks. Uh, well, just to, to summarize it, uh, I saw a problem and I decided I, I could make a difference. Well, that's a pretty short summary. Let's, let's beef that up a little bit. No, 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 that's not a problem. But really, in a nutshell, that, 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 is, that is what we did. We saw a problem and, and, and tried to make a positive contribution towards fixing that. My background is military. I served as a clearance diver in the Royal Australian Navy. Uh, that's America's version of, of the Navy SEALs. I went across to the Army 
uh, afterwards uh, and served as a special operations sniper. I deployed to Iraq in 2005 uh, for what was to become the first of, of 12 tours. Uh, left there in 2008, uh, filled various positions over there. One of those was as project manager for the Iraq Special Police Training Academy in northern Baghdad, training up to 700 uh, cadets in paramilitary operations at any one time. And spent the rest of 2008 backpacking through South America with, with not much direction. And 2009 found me in Southern Africa and traveling around trying to get involved with anti-poaching on what was to be only a, I just wanted to do six months involved with anti-poaching and get some cool pictures for Facebook and do something for me. Uh, and then I started to realize that there's a lot more to life than scratching a own itch and seeing the horrors of the world wildlife war up close and the rangers that are stationed on the thin green line trying to defend the first and last line of, of, of wildlife, I realized that, that this was my calling. I had uh, sufficient funding to get something going like the IAPF. I had the motivation and I had the skills and it's unfortunate that they're the sort of skills that are required to defend wildlife these days, but that's the truth and that's the world we've created and this is what we have to do to manage it. Well, that's what is so incredible about having you as our guest today. And the, the purpose of this show, Our Wild World, is to engage our listeners in uh, what's going on, the challenges that we face. Here in the West, we're very far away from the tangible aspect of what is happening on that thin green line where people and wildlife meet in the terms of protection. So the, the past model of wildlife conservation has always been boots on the ground, um, a small patrol of rangers in huge swaths of, of uh, habitat. But with um, the changing of the systems today, we have huge pressure through syndicates um, and on ivory and uh, rhino horn. So that puts major threats onto elephants and rhino. So you have a bit more of a story that I'd like to hear that, um, and I think our listeners would like to hear, of why this became so important to you and then went uh, even, that you went even further and made some very huge lifestyle changes. Would you be willing to share some of that with us? Of course, Sally. That's what I'm here for. Well, I'd, 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 we'd love to hear it. Okay. So just to, just to take you back to the beginning and, and traveling around Southern Africa, you started to see uh, rangers out there on the front line and, and with such limited equipment, uh, uniforms that were old and torn and training that was almost non-existent. In a, in a lot of cases, guys just recruited, given a minimal wage and sent out there into one of the most dangerous environments I've ever experienced and expected to defend those animals. And these guys aren't just defending lines on a map. They're not looking after a patch of oil on the other side of the world. These guys are looking after the heartlands of the planet. And so I thought we owe it to these guys to give them a better education, uh, to give them better equipment to go out there and do their job and give them access to the same technology that I had experienced in Iraq. And when you spend time on the front lines in Iraq and you, you see the, the full muscle of the U.S. military might wind up and what it's capable of and, and the logistics it has behind it, and then you come to Africa and spend some time in the bush and you see you know, these guys are running around in rags 
uh, using equipment that's been superseded uh, a long time ago. Yeah, it's, it just doesn't make sense. So, Well, it's been superseded by modern uh, military equipment, which um, costs money, uh, requires access, and there's a whole different kind of population, whether it, we'll talk a little bit about the syndicates, um, which are being run and use uh, the rangers on the ground, and the people on the ground pretty much is fodder for their purposes in terms of elephant, ivory, and rhino horn. So... What it sounds like and, and what you and your team have done is decided to meet fire, match fire with fire, uh, to uh, train up these guys, give them an incentive. Uh, when, you, when you go out and you don't have the capability or the wherewithal to know what you're doing uh, on this thin green line to, to a skill set that's trainable, as you said, or well-trained, then um, there's not a lot of incentive without uniforms, without proper weapons, without proper training, knowledge, maps, all that it takes to, um, I think your term is fight the worldwide war on wildlife. It not only takes people training, but it also takes money. And the IAPF provides all. And um, so you've talked a little bit about the training. Um, where does I- IAPF uh, get its funding from, and uh, where do you end up working most of the time? I believe uh, so if people go to your website, which is www.iapf.org forward slash en forward slash, then um, you'll see several projects that IAPF is involved in. Um, I'm not try- asking you to give away sources. I'm trying to find out how you gather this kind of funding, the, um, the amounts of funding it must take to provide this kind of equipment, and uh, do you have volunteers, and, and where, does this, where does this all come together? Okay, yeah, thanks, uh, Ali. Of course, uh, money is, is the backbone of the organization these days, whether we like it or not. Uh, we can't operate without the, the funding that we're, we're generously donated. Most of our funding uh, comes from, from the general public, Actually, it uh, doesn't come from. We get occasional grants in, but uh, most of the funding comes from the general public, and a lot of that is generated off the back end of, of media uh, articles or, or, or programs that we do. And the public see what's going on, and, and they start to understand the requirements, and then they're able to make a decision whether to, whether to donate or not. Now, our organisation we have we have quite a quite a strong position in terms of. Uh, how we approach conservation and we try to bring military solutions uh, to conservation's thin green line and that for, for everyone isn't, isn't always the right way and uh, you seem to have this sliding shop run of what donors want to be associated with, donors or NGOs or governments and uh, a lot of people don't like to admit that rangers carry guns and sometimes they're involved in shootouts and uh, they need technology like unmanned drones to be able to carry out their job. But when you get well-trained and well-armed units crossing international borders to take out animals, uh, if those units were coming across and taking out people or, or taking out um, high-value targets, it would be an international incident. But this happens every day around the world hundreds of times. And uh, we sit here having to justify um, to the general public and uh, I have to justify why, why we actually take this 
this hardline approach. And you can package up anti-poaching any way you like it, but it is a paramilitary operation. Uh, the guys out there are, d- are defending animals that poachers are willing to go to extreme lengths to take down. And uh, conservation isn't a scientific experiment. It's a war raging out there, and it's a war that's being lost. And so we took a, we took a position of trying to provide rangers with the correct paramilitary uh, training and equipment that they need to be able to go out there and defend high-target species from poachers. Well, you bring up an, an excuse me an, an important point. If many of us read the headlines of what is happening uh, on the to elephants and rhino in South Africa in Zimbabwe, there was recently an article of. 300 elephants poisoned by a cyanide in Zimbabwe. And then uh, how many rhino? I think it's up to almost 600 in 2013 alone, <clears throat> alone in South Africa. Um, then it makes makes one wonder how are we going to fight this. So whether you like the term paramilitary or not, and whether you want to uh, equate that with um, what you see on TV as uh, a, a different kind of war. What Damien is doing is bringing, is, is leveling the playing field for these species who have no voice and have no protection. And um, you brought up an, an important point of what NGOs want or can or cannot fund. And these days, with war on terror, war on drugs, war on human trafficking, it's a sticky wicket to get involved in paramilitary operations. And certainly there are ways around that. Um, I want to back up a second. You mentioned the word drones. Uh you have a very interesting um, little, not little, project going on that with that, uh, with a friend that helped uh, you create the first drone. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was approached, uh, when was it? Jeez, it was back in 2012, so it's still quite recently. Uh, and just to back up even a little bit more, uh, when I first arrived in Africa, it was one of the first things I thought of is I can have a drone bringing me home safely from uh from the streets of Baghdad each day, then why can't an animal expect to walk down to a watering hole without having a heavy caliber bullet ripping through its, uh, ripping through its heart and lungs, uh, whereas a drone could intercept and, and, and prevent that from happening. So it was, it was something that, it was an, an, immediate, an immediate thing that I thought of when I first arrived. And uh, in 2012, I was approached by Simon, uh, an ex-helicopter uh, technician for the Royal Navy, and... Uh, Basically, said he'd like to start building drones. Now, uh, I have a simple formula, and that is that uh, for every 100 people that approach you uh, offering help, but 95 of them are usually full of crap. And so uh, I didn't think too much of it. Uh, it's a simple formula I have, and it helps me uh, deal with the amount of, of false offers that we do get. And uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's good to know those figures because... For every uh, every hundred people that you get through, you know that you know you're going to get five genuines out of that. And uh, Simon turned out to be one of those 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 genuine people. Uh, we were up working in northern Mozambique, and uh, Simon emailed me and said he's ready to go with the drones. And I said, oh, really? And I wasn't expecting it that quick. And uh, we contacted 60 Minutes, who had already done a story with us in 2010, and said, you know, we we're using these drones to to uh, to protect. Uh, to protect elephants and, and, and wildlife up in northern Mozambique. Would you like to come and film it? 
and uh, they a few weeks later they were there, and we used these and the drones we were using were, were small. Uh, they had a had a limited uh, flight time uh, and limited capabilities in terms of of the optics that were attached to them. But they were a drone in the air, and it demonstrated. Uh, not only that this was a feasible concept, but it also demonstrated that this is the sort of stuff that conservationists are struggling to put together uh, when the military has access to, to these, these types of things quite readily. And the stuff that's being built in the conservation industry, and I'm not just talking about drones here, but the systems and the technology that's used in the conservation industry, uh, you know, we, we, we try and pull these things together with such limited budgets but it's exactly the same stuff that, that sits in military warehouses around the world and not only exists but was superseded decades ago. And uh, you sort of just start to wonder why, why we can't get the same sort of uh, privileges uh, protecting the heart and lungs of the planet as, uh, as someone else would have um, defending a state line, so to speak. I love the way you say that, defending the heart and lungs of the planet and applying modern technology, and let's not call it warfare, let's call it modern technology, um, to wildlife conservation. We're already using GPS um, and uh, infrared systems and cameras and camera traps and um, infrared and night vision, um, night vision scopes and all this sort of thing. So it's not that small or big of a step to bring in drones with high... It's not, it's just, yeah, it's just redirecting it towards uh, something which I'm a little bit biased towards and that's looking after the environment. But uh, we, the 60-minute show was great. It showcased what we were using and from that we had an amazing group of people come forward and, uh, and start building our next range of drones and these drones are much bigger. Uh, they have a much longer flight time. They have stabilised thermal imagery and uh, they're much cheaper than what you would pay for... for purchasing a similar system off the shelf because when you're building anything that flies, a lot of the money goes into research and development and because of the, the show that was done by 60 Minutes and, and also the article in Africa Geographic magazine, uh, you know, people, people saw it and, and came forward and they already had the, the, the expertise. It was just applying it to a different field and the UAV industry or unmanned aerial vehicle industry, it doesn't always have the best reputation because normally when you see a drone on TV, it's, it's dropping a bomb on something on the other side of the world and all of a sudden there's the capability of having a positive story attached to it. So we, we did get um, we got some really good feedback from that and some good people come forward and, and that is helping us take, uh, take the drones that we build and deploy to the next level. That's a tremendous accomplishment, and I'd like our listeners once again to know the website is www.iapf.org forward slash en forward slash. And on this website, you can see all the articles and different presentations and clips and uh, short films uh, on the website, and including uh, Damien's TEDx talk in Sydney, which is incredibly powerful. It and, and moving, and I suggest all our listeners take a look at that. So right now we're going to head into a short break, and we'll be right back. So stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, 
beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. And just before the break, we were talking about uh, the new models of conservation um, to help fight this worldwide war on wildlife and uh, upping the game a bit to level the field between uh, the poachers or the syndicates and the poachers on the ground who sometimes have no other choice. And we have a caller, Tammy from Texas. Uh, Welcome, Tammy. I guess you have a question for Damien. Yes, I do. Thank you, Ellie. And hello, Damien. It's so nice to meet you over the phone. Um, Hi, Tammy. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Um, listen, I, I just want to say right off that I am totally behind your uh, idea of military solutions for conservation because I just think with the level of crime now and uh, those horrible statistics, we really don't have any uh, choice but to up the ante. But uh, anyway, my concern is, as just somebody who's not in the field, is that There are so many organizations um, and good organizations that are trying to raise money for uh, protection of certain species that it's hard for for me and I'm sure other people to decide where to put their money. Um, So I'm wondering, you know, how this translates 
um, in the front lines, per se, like our organizations competing to save a species. And I think this also pertains to the drone industry because I keep reading online and in magazines that, you know, somebody in South Africa is trying to develop a drone and somebody in Tanzania is trying to develop a drone and somebody in India is trying to develop drones. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, in an effort to save specifically the black rhino from poaching, um, you know, how could or, or even should we, you know, how could conservation animal protection societies um, better collaborate to ensure that the maximum, num- you know, amount of funds are going to the animal and not just to so much redundant administration costs? Yeah, you're exactly right, actually. And uh, there was an email going around recently between a few few key players in the industry and, and, and they were blaming politics uh, on the situation, uh, growing populations, poverty, and uh, I wrote back and I said, uh, basically, when in history has any problem been solved by a million different people trying to do a million different things? Right. And uh, I think the conservation industry needs to actually have a look internally and look at itself. And, and it's really unfortunate, actually. Uh, it's really uh, fragmented in a lot of ways. And, uh, there's a lot of bickering and it's because... I'll tell you the main reason why it is is because there's such limited money for conservation and everybody has their own logos, their own ideas, their own organizations, their own way of doing things. But I I had a sad realization earlier on in the year that in a lot of cases, uh, conservation isn't just conservation, it's another form of business. These organizations are competing against each other like businesses. Uh, We've we've taken an approach of, of trying to work uh, with as many people that want to be involved with what we do as possible. Uh, one, of the, one of the projects we've been working on now, and this is what I wanted to, to talk about on the show, so this is a perfect opportunity, I think. Uh, two and a half years ago, we drafted up uh, a matrix of a career path of what we thought rangers needed to learn to be able to go out there on the front lines and, and, and do their job sufficiently. And we tried to overlay that with existing qualifications and what we found was that there was no qualification that supported what we thought rangers needed to know. And so two and a half years ago, we started this process. And just on Wednesday last week, um, it was approved. We, we, we had two new qualifications uh, built under the South African Qualification Authority of Anti-Poaching Ranger and Anti-Poaching Manager. Now, this takes a ranger from uh, low literacy learning and it gives them a, a career path that will one day put them in a position where they can command and control anti-poaching operations. And we've already outlined that an anti-poaching operation, whether we like it or not, is a paramilitary operation. Uh, what we have now, and in particular in Southern Africa, is you have a diminishing population of people in the conservation industry that have military or combat experience. And uh, there's nothing that is attempted to close this generation gap that now exists. So you've got conservationists, you've got game farmers, you've got scientists that have risen through their ranks and now find themselves in a management position where they're looking after 20 or 30 guys that carry automatic weapons and expected to stop international incursions to take out high-target species like rhino and elephant. And the existing qualification that's delivered here uh, consists of 127 credits Four of those credits focus on paramilitary training. And so what we've done is basically reversed that. We've given rangers everything they need to know in a qualification, but also with a strong conservation focus throughout it. 
And this, uh, it's taken an incredible amount of work to get everyone to sit around the table together. Uh, when we sent out the expression of interest to the industry, uh, we had immediate feedback that was positive from all across the world. And what we also did as part of the project is so that any organisation or country that wants to come to the table and help us develop the curriculum and be a, play a constructive part in the process and agree to help industry meet minimum standards for range of training, then at the end of that process they will take co-ownership of the training material. Uh, we currently have 58 industry leaders from 23 countries. Uh, 20, uh, eight of those 23 countries have uh, government departments that have registered to take part. So for the first time, we have a common platform for everyone to be working together in terms of training and operations. And that is our way of, of, of trying to bring everyone to sit around the same table. Uh, it hasn't been easy. Uh, it's been perceived as a threat by, by some commercial training providers and, and by other organisations. You know, why does an Australian have to come in here and tell us how to do things? But we basically had a good look at what was going on here and decided that this is the training that rangers need, and if we're going to give that training, then we might as well make it an accredited uh, career path. This is amazing news, Damien, absolutely amazing news. And Tammy, I hope that answered your question. She is off the line, but I'm sure she's still listening. And uh, Damien, you brought up many uh, critical points um, in terms of organizations collaborating, what I call the fracturing of the conservation landscape, um, donor fatigue, conservation fatigue, uh, the model, uh, the, the previous model, uh, the colonial model of conservation and protectionism, which has not often included on the ground local communities. And then you bring up the point of what you just said, you know, some Australian coming in and telling us what to do. I don't think it's a matter anymore and relevant to Tammy's question by upping the and upping the ante in terms of wildlife conservation and the thin green line, I don't think it matters who or where anybody is from these days. The point is, as Damien said, to collaborate and bring the model together. That's what's going to shift things. And it is often when one is outside the box and looking at it from a completely different perspective, such as Damien coming from a military perspective, and looking at a similar situation, but instead of a war based on religion or oil, it's based on wildlife, that we have to take all perspectives and look at all tools available available to us to find solutions. As Damien said, there's you know a million solu- there's a million solutions. There's a million people. Well, we've got seven billion people and counting, which we can all work together. So I think it's critical, and that's incredibly exciting news, Damien. And thank you, and congratulations. Thank you. I, I actually class it as, as our greatest achievement so far is having. This, uh, this non-standardized training that is being delivered finally recognized, uh, but not only recognized, but the international collaboration that's come around uh, the table for this project. Uh, I, I think we, we truly have acceptance now in terms of the requirements of rangers that are out there on the front line. And, and uh, it's, as I said, it's, it's an unfortunate world, but this is the reality that we've created and, and this is what we have to do to manage, manage that threat. 
And I think our listeners can learn something from this conversation today. I've been talking for the past year and a half on our wild world of the changes and the challenges that wildlife conservation is facing and how uh, people can help. Uh, not only uh, does Wild Eyes have a variety of projects, uh, targeted projects that will help bring conservation forward in a variety of ways, but the uh, IAPF has several different uh, projects that people can get involved in. I think it's uh, listed on your website as there are seven things the IAPF and the Green Army need from us and how we can widen the thin green line into full uh, pr- protection. So uh, you have on your website a, a, a place where someone can click called Join the Green Army. Um, tell us a little bit about these uh, seven things that people can do and a little bit about the Green Army or is what we've been talking about the whole point of the Green Army? The Green Army is uh, its not only the people that come from all across the world to spend time with us on the front line doing various various jobs, but the Green Army is also the logistical machine that we have operating around us that keeps that pointy end uh, happening out there on 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 the thin green line. It keeps the guys deployed. It keeps the drones in the air. Uh, it, it keeps the equipment in the, in the right order. And uh, it keeps the funding coming in. And this is the Green Army. And we have everything from from lawyers who volunteer to teachers that come over and teach our instructors to be better instructors to uh, nurses that come over and help with our, our medical training. Uh, we have ex-army guys that come across and, and help with the training of the rangers on the front line. We have all walks of life come over and, and spend time out there patrolling the the, the fences and the, the roads and, and monitoring the wildlife. And you know, a lot of people think that it's just a front line operation, but it's not. It's actually the machine that keeps us going, which is that incredible support we have from all over the world is... is is the biggest part of the organization, and we call that part the Green Army. This also addresses Tammy's question about um, ensuring donor funds are channeled to the species versus administration. One thing, um, it's a difficult question because it separates species protection from the administration that is required for species protection. So, Damien, what you've been talking about is the equipment, the training, all the various aspects, um, all the different volunteer opportunities and funding, uh, donor funding opportunities that help the Green Army and what IAPF does, which literally translates to making huge strides forward on the ground. So one thing I've always said is wildlife doesn't need money per se the way we do. It doesn't have to go shopping. It doesn't need to go buy its food. It What it needs is space and the freedom and the ability to do what it does. So when you donate to an organization such as IAPF, you are donating somewhat to administration, but hopefully that administration on an Excel spreadsheet balances out so that one looks at this and says the balance is that the training, the bulk of the funding is going toward improving the ability of boots on the ground conservation. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and uh, just like any, any, any battle that's being fought, it does require funding. Unfortunately, I'm very bad at asking for it. I should be better. I'm the CEO of a Well, I'm just going to ask for you. 
everybody out there listening, you've just heard um, 36 minutes, so to speak, of what is going on on the front lines of conservation. The last past two shows um, that I presented in the last two weeks was gearing you up to better understand, gearing you, our listeners, to better understand the battle lines that are being drawn on the conservation front lines. Not only is it an increased amount of research and data that we're able to collect and learn from through improved technology, but there's the other side. As long as we're learning so much more, what are we going to do and how are we going to address protecting and conserving all the species that we're still discovering and that we're losing at an incredible rate daily. Um, so the thin green line, not only is it the, the green army in terms of boots on the ground, the, our listeners, our audience, anyone who is passionate and loves animals can translate this passion into funding and support for that which they care about. And as both our uh, listener question and what Damien and I are talking about today is these pr- projects, these organizations need money, more so today than at any other time before. Um, the small organizations that you can check and follow online and know exactly where your money is going is an improvement over, I'm going to call it the large international organizations who have million dollar budgets. They're very good at what they do. They keep us apprised of the situation, but at the same time, when you make a donation, you can't exactly call up and say, did my $25 save that tiger? Did my $5,000 actually uh, clothe uh, feed and provide shelter for a poacher on the ground. You can either, uh, you can contact an organization like IAPF or Damien directly and find out where your money goes. Uh, and that's important today in the philanthropic landscape. Uh, checkbook philanthropy is gone. People come with their money or money comes with the person. And, uh, yep. Damien, you have, uh, some volunteer programs. Uh, one of them, uh, is where I was reading is people can come and help. So, um, I'm not sure if that's directed towards ex, ex soldiers like yourself, ex military personnel who have, uh, are looking for something to get involved with and, uh, use their skills to people like me or people like Tammy or just somebody who wants to come over and do something. Uh, tell us what, yeah. what people can do. Of course. Uh, all you need to bring is your enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But, uh, and some yeah, money and some equi- uh, for some equipment. Yeah, look, it's, uh, we, we have people from all walks of life that come over and spend time with us living with the rangers. And, and uh, we have an operation in South Africa uh, up near Kruger National Park and also another one in Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. Uh, where volunteers can come and stay. We're just opening up another one now with one of our new projects up on Lake Kariba uh, in Zimbabwe, an area that's been uh, severely hit uh, with elephant poaching. And uh, so we're just in the process now. We we have some some very generous donations, ongoing donations, uh, which enabled us to start up this new anti-poaching unit up at a place called Masungo on Lake Kariba. And uh, we, we start selection for that in, uh, in eight days. Selection will be run out of Victoria Falls. The basic training will take place at our training facility uh, in Victoria Falls and, and we'll then deploy the team up there with a the manager. Uh, we're going to put an aircraft up there 
uh, a vehicle and uh, and the volunteers from around the world that will come in and, and assist. And they, they understand when they come across that the money they donate uh, as part of their, their volunteering goes directly to, to running the operation. And they, they not only get to donate the money, but they then to get out, go out and spend time as part of the operation on the front line and see exactly what that dollar is doing. Well, that's definitely following the money. So all, yeah. all you that's- listeners out there, if you're looking for um, an experience that will change your life um, and also willing to help change the lives of wildlife, then definitely contact Damien Mander with the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Once again, that website is www.iapf.org forward slash en. You don't need you don't know just .org. You don't yeah. just .org because when I tried putting yeah. that in one time, it came up as page not found. So really? whatever you can always just do a Google search for Damien Mander and IAPF, IAPF, and it will come up, and you will see several presentations by Damien. And I strongly urge our listeners to watch. Uh, his TEDx show, his rock and rock and roll for rhinos presentation, which is a whole uh, contemporary concept. I mean, we we often think of wildlife conservation in Africa as something like an artifact stuck in time with um, tribal people that are living in the past century. Well, that's not the case anymore, and that's what uh, IAPF and Damien and his crew and his volunteers and all of those who, who want to help are trying to point out that Africa is facing the 21st century, and to keep these species alive, these megafauna, these critical species that are under and facing such threat, um, alive into the future. And uh, that's where the thin green line comes in. So now, people, people should also um, should also be educated that uh, as part of our training and as part of having a, a, a formal standardised process that you're able to introduce concepts like the correct use of force. Now, the use of force, uh, if it's done correctly, the escalation in the use of force means that the minimum amount of force required to get the job done is used. So rather than rangers just going out there and flicking a switch to auto and spraying uh, in a general direction, they're actually able to escalate through the correct procedures and it's much like any Western law enforcement model. Also, what we've demonstrated, what we've seen, what we've proven is that a well-trained ranger uh, is able to take charge of situations generally before they get out of hand and make arrests as opposed to uh, getting shot or trying to shoot someone else. And so by training rangers in a correct and, and paramilitary way, which is what they require to be out there defending these animals, uh, you're actually preserving human life as well as wildlife. Absolutely. That was an important, important factor um, to, get a, to get across. I also want to point out that, even, and, and it's also stated on uh, Damien's website, that these teams, uh, these anti paramilitary anti-poaching teams, are not going into quiet, um, serene places like, let's say, the Maasai Mara in Kenya, where there is not quite the same threat. These teams are going into volatile, violent areas where typically not only the civilian population but the ranger population are not prepared to be able to confront and deal with um, a highly trained or even highly armed uh, poaching team or mm. um, 
I don't want to use the word enemy, but it's some, nothing else is coming to me at the moment. So it, it really is fighting with fire. Where are um, some of the, the places that you work in? Uh, I know you just returned from Zim, Zimbabwe. And yeah. uh, where are some of the other places that uh, your teams are, are bringing in uh, these, uh, these models? Okay, so South Africa uh, is, an, is another place where we've been working. We've got a base just up next to Kruger National Park. Uh, next week we're heading into Mozambique again. Uh, we ran projects there last year. Next week, so it's uh, just across the border uh, in a reserve that that shares a, a boundary line with Kruger National Park. Uh, they've got rhinos moving in there from Kruger, and uh, according to some reports, that would be the only rhinos left in the country uh, in, in Mozambique. Uh, a ranger they started doing their patrols. Uh, on motorbike because there's so limited ranges up there. So they started doing their patrols on motorbike and the poachers had actually broken into the reserve and strung uh, wire across a road. And uh, when you hit a piece of wire on a motorbike at at 55 kilometres an hour, it's not pretty. Uh, So we've been asked to come up there and and get uh, some technology and systems in place that we've used in in countries like uh, South Africa and and Zimbabwe. I'm currently sitting with requests from 65 different reserves to come in and do training and operations for them, and we just don't have the resources. Uh, the, the call for training is, is so great and so wide, uh, it's hard to imagine how we can ever grow to an organisation that can facilitate uh, all these requirements, not just in Africa but around the world. But you know, that's, that's what we're all, all trying to work towards, to be able to provide the correct education and the correct equipment to rangers across the world. So do you think you'll get government buy-in? I mean, in terms of support? Uh, oh, we do. I, we, I we, we only work, we only work uh, within the laws and regulations of each country, and we don't start work in a country until we have buy-in from the government. I'm sorry, uh, it's, I, it's, I might have mis, mis, misrepresented that. I know you have um, work in, in collaboration with governments, I guess what I yeah. meant was government buy-in in terms of setting aside money to make this happen. Well, a lot of these governments don't—they uh, don't have the, the required funding uh, to carry out sufficient uh, protection of, of all these wilderness areas, and we tend to think of these wilderness areas belonging to specific countries, but it's not the case. These wilderness areas and the animals that inhabit them belong to the world. And, I often think it's unfair that uh, the world expects certain countries to look after these areas uh, as their own resource when in actual fact they're a global resource and they should be protected and defended by people from around the world. And uh, we, 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 have, um, we have various funding that comes in from, from, from certain governments. Uh, there was a report done last year actually out of the UK uh, and they put a global figure on conservation and looking after all the world's protected areas. And that figure was set at $76 billion US dollars. And that might sound like a lot of money uh, to protect what we've spoken as the heart and lungs of the planet. But uh, when the US has an annual military expenditure of $670 billion or 39% of, of the global's expenditure, then it's really it's not a huge amount of money. To, it's all, it's all to try relative. and ensure our future. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and you make a good point. It is a global responsibility. Um, 
and and I've talked about this with many of the people and the my colleagues and our grantees, and there's that old argument that wildlife must pay for itself, and the other side of that argument is that um, the West must pay for wildlife until the countries, as you just explained, who don't have the internal budgets because they're emerging uh, industrialization or emerging nations onto the political stage, don't have this money. That it is the world's job to do this because the wildlife belongs to us all. So I'm going to segue. We don't have a lot of time left, but I'm going to segue. It goes quickly. It does. I mean, it, it does, and there's so much yeah. ground to cover. Um, I'm yeah. going to segue a little quickly since you've been talking about South Africa and the borderline between the Kruger and Mozambique, where a lot of the incursions seem to be happening and the rhino poaching is, is going on. What do you think of the proposed legali- legalization of rhino horn trade there was a there was an emergency summit held in kenya last year and one of the the primary thoughts uh, to solve this rhino poaching epidemic that we have was to go to asia and teach them uh not to use rhino horn which i thought was a little ridiculous actually uh education in asia can work perhaps if it's given enough resources and we we plan to do that over generations but we don't have generations. We don't have 25 years. We don't have 10 years. We don't have five. This has to happen now. Uh, now, you can take... Now, I'm a vegan too, so I don't take any of these products myself. But you can take milk from cows. You can take wool from sheep. You can take eggs from birds. You can take honey from bees. There is only one other animal product I can think of that humans use uh, where you don't have to kill the animals to take it. And that is rhino horn. And we have a situation now where rhinos are being poached to extinction. Uh, experts believe that they have uh, around 10 years left in the wild um, before they're, they're completely wiped out. And you have a renewable, sustainable resource that's worth up to 75000 US dollars a kilogram, and it grows on the end of a rhino's snout, and that is the rhino's horn. And so if you're a game farmer or you run a reserve in, in Africa and you have uh, a handful of rhino running around. Uh, you're not going to make your money through tourism generally because you're competing with places like Kruger, which have thousands of rhinos. Uh, so how are you going to generate the funding? Now, if you can't generate the right funding to look after those rhino, to put in the fire brakes, to put the fence up, to get the vehicles out there patrolling and, and have the anti-poaching unit, then a good proportion of those rhinos are going to be poached, and that's what's happening. Now, if all of a sudden you can sell that rhino horn, And you've got to remember, to take the horn off a rhino, it doesn't hurt the rhino at all. The horn grows back within three years, and you can get uh, between eight and nine harvests uh, out of a a rhino um, in each lifespan. And uh, if that rhino horn is is now worth something, uh, you don't just want the handful of rhino you want. You want more rhino. But if you want to have more rhino, you need more land. And if rhinos are the hardest animals to protect, and we set our, our, our bar at protecting those animals then everything else in that ecosystem is being looked after. But what we have is a 37-year-old trade ban uh, from, from uh, CITES, the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, against the trade in rhino horn. Now, in my perfect world, rhinos would run around in the wild. Uh, they wouldn't be poached and they have their whole horn. But we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where rhinos are being poached to extinction and people are paying up to $75,000 a kilogram uh, for that horn and at the moment a rhino is worth twice as much dead 
as it is alive. And the only proposal on the table which makes a rhino worth more alive than dead is some sort of legalized trade in horn. And the idea offends a lot of people and they think we need to go to Asia and, and change a 2,000-year-old belief system that's as deeply ingrained as DNA itself. But I think that's a little bit arrogant for the West to be going into the East and, and telling them how it's done, particularly when you look at how most of our medicines were developed and tested and that was on animals, which caused a lot of suffering and a lot of death. Well, um, wow. Um, <laughs> so this, this argument, the pro-anti-rhino horn trade, is, is it's, it's a big ba- another battle that's on the front lines today. And um, typically the knee-jerk reaction is to say no, but um, we can point fingers, as you said, to eating meat, eating lamb, eating eggs, eating dairy, and um, both you and I have chosen to not eat uh, meat. I'm not vegan, but um, I haven't eaten meat for 45 years. It's a personal choice. So mm. it's, it's a lot of what we're going to have to do in terms of the future of life on Earth and sharing it with all the other non-human beings that we share and these incredible and charismatic megafauna, um, whether they need to pay for themselves by selling their horns or whether we step up and provide the funding so that that doesn't have to happen. It's our choice as a human community on this earth. Um, we have one more question here that came in. Um, what do you think about the um, Texas or the other hunting clubs auctioning off rhino hunts? Uh, I think this current one is in Namibia. What do you think about that? Do you think it, 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 it helps conservation or do you think it hinders and puts another blow to um, the battle? Yeah, listen, I've, I've seen that come across uh, my desk quite a bit in the last couple of weeks and uh, it always creates a lot of emotion hunting and I think it's always ironic that uh, people like to put those posts on there and, and jump up and down and they probably sit down at night and eat a steak for dinner. Uh, mm. uh, so I, I'm a big one for 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 advocating uh, non-speciesism. So if you want to protect one animal, then you should protect all animals. And I personally don't go out and, 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 and hunt, uh, well, not animals. Uh, you know, we, it's, it's not something that I do or I, I choose to do, but I understand that hunters as a group put more money into conservation than, than any other group. Uh, and, and so whether people like it or not, it's just the... Um, it's just the, the actual truth that people need to need to accept, and uh, you know, if, if people really want to save animals, then uh, and I mean directly, personally, then uh, just don't put them in your mouth. That's that's the quickest way you can start saving animals and, and helping the environment. Um, but uh, if you want to do more, then you can get on board with IAPF. That's an excellent point. Um, I love that. Just don't put them in the mar- in your mouth. So currently we're at a point in our evolution and a place on our planet where we have to make choices. And some of these choices are going to be hard and some of these sacrifices are going to be difficult. But um, they can be done. Hopefully we'll get to a place in the near future where um, these kind of battle lines don't have to be drawn. That we've gotten to a place where we're willing to live with 
and support and pay for um, the life that lives on this earth with us. So we're about out of time. Um, Damien, do you have uh, any last comments that you would like our listeners to take away from today's talk? Yeah, I'd just really like to thank you and your listeners. Uh, The people that are tuned in today are all all people that are deeply concerned with the animals and the environment and I think uh, they're the sort of people that we need more of in the world. Uh, we are, as an organisation, the International Anti-Poaching Foundation is a direct action law enforcement organisation. We don't dance around the truth of what's required on the front line. We just go out there and get the job done each and every day at the coalface. And, and to those people that support us, I'd just like to say thank you very much. Uh, without that international support, we could not go out there and protect what we protect or defend what we defend, and, and we are a group of people that defend, we don't exploit. That's, uh, that's how we operate. And uh, you know, it's, I, I pray that one day I'm out of work. That is my one true wish. And our listeners, um, thank you, Damien. Our listeners can help make that happen. Once again, please visit www.iapf.org. Give your time, your funding, your passion, and help make this happen and turn the tide for uh, the, the worldwide war on wildlife. So once again, Damien, thank you so much for your time and being my very special guest. And I look forward to keeping thank up you. with with your work. And thank we're you, out of, an amazing woman. Uh, thank you, Damien. Um, nothing quite compared to you. You put it on the line every day. Um, we can I do only it. aspire to, uh, <laughs> to do things as long as you have dedicated uh, your time and, and, uh, and focus on. So thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. And I just hope and pray we each are able to continue to do what we do and um, our listeners choose to join in. So we're out of time today. Thank you very much. This has been Damien Mander with the International Anti-Poaching Foundation and Ellie Weiss, and you've been listening to Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 